As we've been saying for the past four weeks now, we're in the season of Advent, which comes from the Latin word Adventus, meaning coming or arrival. And we've been saying that on a basic level, Advent is a season of preparation for Christmas, which is our celebration of Christ's first coming, first arrival, first Advent. And really, though, this is a season not of preparation for a holiday, but of preparation uh, for an event of Christ's second Advent, his second coming. Uh, He will come again to judge the living and the dead. And we've been asking, uh, as we've looked at John the Baptist, uh, and uh, as we've looked at Jesus's, uh, what he says about the end of history, we've been asking this question, are you ready? Uh, That's what Advent is really putting to us. So this morning we have a familiar text from the first chapter of Matthew's Gospel. I'm guessing many of you have probably heard this before. Uh, The Virgin Mary is found to be with child. Joseph resolves to quietly divorce her because he's a good guy and he doesn't want to like put her to public shame. But he thinks she's cheated on him, right? And then in this dream, the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph telling him that, don't worry, this child is from the Holy Spirit. Uh, It's all good. It's okay, Joseph. Hold on, just stick with me. And Matthew says that all of these crazy events happened, they took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Everyone would have known Isaiah. And these are the words. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Who's heard those words before? Before today, you just heard him a couple minutes ago, right? But uh, anyone ever heard Handel's Messiah, right? Uh, Famous piece of music. These words are in it, right? Um, So uh, this is a familiar story and a familiar quote, but I think sometimes familiarity can breed contempt. Uh, Sometimes we overlook the things that are most familiar to us. Uh, There's a famous uh, experiment that was run where... uh, they had all these different people, some dressed in black and some dressed in white, tossing a ball back and forth between each other. And um, you were supposed to count how many times the folks in white passed the ball between each other. And uh, as you're counting, uh, in the middle of the screen, a person in a gorilla suit just walks into the center and waves at the camera for like three seconds and then walks off. And then at the end, there's a question, how many times did they pass the ball? And did you see the person in the gorilla suit? And uh, without fail, 50% of the population that they quizzed uh, did not see the person in the gorilla suit. So as I was preparing for this sermon, I thought, well, I might as well just go and experiment on someone. So I go over to Alex's office. Alex, have you seen it? And he he saw the guy in the gorilla suit. But uh, (laughs) so... Your rector is a cut above the rest. (laughs) But familiarity breeds contempt. And sometimes we don't see the thing that's right before us. So I want to zero in on something this morning. uh, On that quotation, Isaiah 7, 14. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which Matthew tells us the meaning of the Hebrew, God with us. Matthew doesn't just include that quote for decoration. It's not a garnish on the plate. Uh, There's a meaning behind it, and there's actually a story behind it. 
And that story sheds light on the significance of Jesus's birth. So this morning, I want to tell you the story behind that quote. And it's the story of Jesus's great, 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 great grandfather. Did you guys count that? It's a man named Ahaz. And spoiler alert, this is not a happy story. So, but Ahaz is really what all of us have the potential and the proclivity to be when left to ourselves. But we're going to see that God is good, even when humans like Ahaz and you fail. So, turn with me to Isaiah 7, if you'd like to follow along. Uh, The first thing to know about Ahaz is his pedigree. Uh, He was a descendant of Israel's iconic king, David, uh, and God had promised to David uh, that he would have an everlasting kingdom. Uh, He says to David in 2 Samuel 7, 16, your throne, David, will be established forever. This is a ludicrous promise. Uh, David sits on the most contested piece of real estate in the world, the crossroads of the ancient Near East. Everybody was constantly coming in and conquering. Nation states and borderlines were always changing. Any sort of kingship is going to be at the best short-lived and very impermanent. Who would say, what kind of God would dare to say, your kingly line will always stand? So Ahaz stood in that kingly line. He stood on that forever established throne. And this should have been uh, like steel in his spine, right? Should have been a big deal. But it seemed uh, quite dicey in the moment. Uh, Ahaz became Israel's, the king of Israel's southern kingdom, Judah, uh, right in the middle of a national crisis. This new superpower from the east called... Uh, not the USSR, but Assyria uh, was threatening to invade, right? The Assyrians were were notoriously ruthless. They did all kinds of things that I won't mention from the pulpit because they're too violent and graphic, but they were not good guys and they were very powerful. And Judah's neighbors, a a couple of nation states to the north, little guys, were getting rather nervous. Uh, If a superpower is coming and you are not a superpower, the best thing you can do, logically, is to band together with other little guys and see if you might have a chance of fighting them off. So the neighboring kingdoms come to Ahaz and say, listen, we're all, you know, we're all too small to fight off the Assyrians on our own. But if we join forces, we'll probably all still die, but we might just have a chance. Let's make an alliance. Good idea, right? But Ahaz refuses because he's too scared of the Assyrians. So instead of of standing his ground, Ahaz becomes a schemer. I I wonder if you know anyone who tends to, when they get anxious, to become a schemer. I think that's all of us on some level or another. We're presented with a problem and we try to find a way around instead of just standing in it and praying and allowing God to do something. Ahaz was a schemer. Uh, And he decides that if you can't beat him, join him. So he takes gold from God's temple, not a good idea, 
and he uses it to bribe the Assyrians to leave him alone, at least for a little while. Um, and surprise, surprise, this scheme backfires in a major sort of way. Uh, the little neighbors to the north get rather miffed about this, and so they all gang up uh, on Ahaz and decide to invade his kingdom. So uh, here we have Ahaz the schemer, who's been relying on his wits and cunning, uh, caught between a rock and a hard place. His little neighbors to the north have all ganged up into a band, and they're coming, and they are invading, and he knows that he doesn't have the strength to fight them off. He doesn't have the army to do that. But even if he could fight them off, sooner or later, the gold in the temple is going to run out. And what's going to happen then? The Assyrians are going to eat him for lunch. He's doomed. Or at least it looks that way. Isaiah 7 verse 2 tells this that, us that when they learned that their neighbors were invading, quote, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. But God isn't shaken. In this moment of crisis, the Lord tells the prophet Isaiah, this is Isaiah 7.3, says, Go to meet Ahaz and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. Sit tight, Ahaz. Just trust me. So Ahaz had to choose between giving in to an impossible situation or holding on to an un, a seemingly unrealistic but ultimately unbreakable promise. Do you give in or you hold on? What are you going to choose, Ahaz? Verse 9 says, Isaiah says to him, If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And I think this is where there's an Advent lesson for you and me. Uh, we also have to choose whether we are going to live um, in such a way that we give in to our situation or whether we're going to live in such a way that we hold on to the promise. Um, in Jesus, we are heirs to an unbreakable promise. Uh, we've been called children of God. For whoever trusts in him, this is John chapter 1, he gave the right to become children of God. And you know what happens to children of God? They live forever. They're glorified. They, they, they find unspeakable joy. Romans 8.28, this is often quoted in such a way that it doesn't really hit home. We don't sit in the truth of this. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That is the promise. God will not fail to bring about your good. He won't. No matter what happens, whether the person you love passes away or leaves you, no matter what unspeakable pain you suffer in this life, God will not fail to bring about your highest good. And yet, I don't know about you, but I find it really easy to be like a tree shaken in the wind. 
um, maybe, it's, maybe it's depression or a mental fog or illness that just won't lift. And um, you wonder if you're ever going to be happy or okay ever again. Um, maybe it's a physical illness and your body is just rebelling against you and falling apart, it seems. Uh, or maybe there's a seemingly senseless tragedy that you're just struggling to make some kind of sense out of. Um, but really, if you look to the center of meaning for it, it just seems empty. Or maybe you're in a deteriorating marriage that's just getting worse and worse and worse. Or maybe it's just a crisis of faith. You look around at church, in the church and you think of the faith that everyone else has and you think, I just don't have that. If, if these people really knew what a hollow, dead soul I am, they would kick me out of here. These are the moments, the dark moments. Uh, and in these moments, we have to make a choice. Uh, will you trust the unbreakable promise that flies in the face of everything you see around you or will you bow to the impossible situation? I suppose the Lord knew that uh, Ahaz was a man of weak faith because he gave him the bumper bowling option. Anybody ever uh, gone bowling before? You know? So, uh, like, you, they, I think they see me coming in, and they're like, oh, we're going to turn that up. Like, little, like, metal gates come because they're like, this guy clearly cannot bowl. Um, the, 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 the bumpers, right? You throw it down, and the, bo- the ball just goes back and forth between the little metal things uh, until, finally, uh, it goes down. And what do you know? You got a strike. It's that easy. <laughs> Lord, God has a way of stooping to us and coming down to our level. He's like, listen, I, don't know, I know this guy doesn't have very good faith, so I know he's not going to trust me in the middle of this, so here's what I'm going to do. Verse 11, he sends Isaiah to Ahaz and says, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Just let me give you something to show you that I'm going to show up for you. I want to make this as easy as I can, Ahaz. This is an invitation and a test. But Ahaz refuses. Verse 12, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. That sounds very pious. It sounds like something that Jesus said to the devil in the wilderness, right? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's Deuteronomy chapter 6. So Ahaz is just obeying the law, right? Wrong. Uh, Testing God with demands and ultimatums is is explicitly forbidden in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Here's a a quick hint for your other relationships, too. Uh, Ultimatums are generally not a good idea. Uh, I, yeah, I'm, enough said. I'm not going to go <laughs> any more into that. Uh, ultimatums, bad idea. Ta- setting out tests in your relationships, bad idea, especially with God. Um, but when God comes to you and says, I want to give you a miracle, uh, that's different. Uh, the correct answer Uh, when God comes offering a miraculous sign and says, hey, I want to give you a sign. You can choose what sign it is. The correct answer is, cool, I would like a puppy. (laughs) I like, 
Could you get me one of those self-cleaning, self-feeding ones, too, while you're at it, God? Um, since you're offering, I mean, I'll trust you anyways, but I'd really like a puppy when I get home. That would encourage me. Thank you very much, by the way. But Ahaz doesn't want a sign. Ahaz doesn't want to walk with God. He has no interest. He doesn't want to trust. Uh, this, isn't a, a, this isn't a story about a man who didn't have enough faith. This is, a man, this is a story about a man who was utterly unwilling to the very extent of his being to yield to a God who was not only knocking but pounding on his door. In the words of the Old Testament scholar Alec Motyer, this was his moment of decision, his point of no return. It was an inflection point for Ahaz, kind of a fork in the road that set the course for the rest of his life. In 2 Chronicles chapter 28, we read this tragic summary of Ahaz's reign. This is what the chronicler says. Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He even made metal images for the Baals, false gods, and he made offerings to other gods and burned his sons as an offering. This is a man whose ways were wicked, and I wonder if it started at this moment, this unyielding moment. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote in The Great Divorce that there are only two kinds of people in the end. There are those who say to God, thy will be done, and there are God, those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. And within 100 years of this refusal, Ahaz's descendant, Zedekiah, was dragged off to Babylon as a slave, effectively ending David's line. Thy will be done, Ahaz. But here's the thing. God is good even when humans fail. Uh, Ahaz refused to ask for a sign. And so what does God do? He's like, all right, I'm going to give you a sign. <laughs> uh, he gives him one anyways. And this is the sign. Verse 13. Behold, the virgin shall con conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose the good. The promise here uh, in the context of Isaiah is that there will be a new king who will come who will be nothing like Ahaz. Uh, this king will be born into, not into luxury and success, but into a ruined kingdom. He will be born of a virgin, an impossible birth. He will grow up eating curds and honey, which in the ancient Near East was poor man's food. And here's the wild part. He will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so that promise is given, and then it sits there. And the Old Testament closes with God's people once again broken and enslaved by the great empires of the world. Uh, and centuries rolled by with David's throne still sitting empty. The promise unfulfilled. What happened? God didn't fulfill this prophecy. I guess it doesn't work, right? Wrong. Uh, if you will, turn with me in your Bibles back to the familiar story. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Um, 
the first thing you notice when you read into Matthew chapter 1 is that Matthew starts the story in the most boring way possible, at least to us. We get this big, long genealogy. Do you see that? Our passage this morning started in verse 18, but what's, what's 1 to 18? It's just like so-and-so was the son of so-and-so was the son of so-and-so was the son of so-and-so. It's a boring way to start a story, isn't it? Why does he do that? A lot of different reasons, but I'll offer a guess as to one. Uh, Matthew starts with this genealogy, which, by the way, includes the name in it Ahaz, because he wants to draw us back into this long, complicated history of very broken people who were all longing and looking forward to some kind of salvation, and all of them leaving something to be desired. And he wants to bring that right into the forefront so that we remember that no matter how impossible it may seem, God makes good on his promises. Think about it. 600 years after David's kingly line was obliterated, in the middle of a conquered nation, in some backwater town, we find a tecton, a town fix-it guy. He's not even a Pharisee. He's not even a religious elite. He has a teenage fiancé who's pregnant out of wedlock. This is ridiculous. And that's all God needs to save the world. It's almost like he makes a point of being meek and lowly just to show the enormity of his power. It's almost like his power is made perfect in weakness. God isn't like you and me. He's not limited. Uh, he's not constrained within the confines of this created order. Uh, he's not worried about the fate of the world, actually. He doesn't look at the news and get anxious. And he doesn't make promises that he doesn't keep. He's not just like well-intended but flawed. He's well-intended and perfect. So I suppose that for you and me, maybe we need to rethink our understanding of what it means to be secure. This comes up a lot at Christmas, right? We're getting, uh, whether you are relationally secure when you enter into a room of family members, or whether you are financially secure as you reach the year end, or whether uh, your health is secure as viruses and bugs just swarm all around. What does it mean to be secure? Do you need to stockpile things? Do you need to find a way to scheme your way? God says no. If you don't stand in faith, you won't stand at all. We have a, a God who recognizes in each of us uh, this Ahaz-like tendency uh, toward our own destruction and the destruction of everyone else around us. And yet he sent this child uh, born in the most humble circumstances, eating curds and honey, eating poor man's food, this king to lead us and to guide us and to be our substitute and to be our healer and all the things that we needed in order to be whole, integrated human beings who live forever. He's everything that is needed. 
And so preparing our hearts to meet the Lord is about preparing ourselves to trust in him and to let down our scheming and to maybe have a little strength with the tiny ounce of faith that we have to hold on. Amen.